stood for the sermon. <laughs> People are like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Please open to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. On this Christmas morning. As you turn there, I want to tell you about a BBC series that was recently filmed, actually uh, last year, and it was on a uh, series on privately owned artwork in England. And the art expert, Dr. Benner Grossvenner, nice rhyming name there, was brought in to help. During one of the scenes of the filming in, in one of the homes in Scotland, a painting caught his eye. This painting was originally attributed to a lesser-known artist, a minor artist by the name of Fancucci di Amola. And it was worth about $2,600, but it caught his eye. And he went over and he began to closely inspect the painting. And what he came to realize is that that painting wasn't by a lesser-known minor artist. It was one of the lost Raphaels hanging in a home in Scotland. The piece, as of right now, has not been uh, sufficiently vetted uh, in the vigorous process of, of finding out if it was actually a Raphael. But if so, it would be Scotland's only publicly owned Raphael. It would appear to be quite a turnaround in a painting that was originally bought for $26 in 1899, was appraised for $2,600 as a lesser-known artist, and is now probably worth in the vicinity of $26 million. I would say that that scale is basically the scale of the response of Jesus in our culture today. 26, 2600, 26 million. And as we go through our text today, I put it to you that those are the types of reactions we're going to see in chapter 2 in Matthew. Look with me at verse 1. As we look at the responses of three people to the birth of Christ. God's word says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where this Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here we have three very different reactions to Jesus being born, to the king of Israel being born. First, we have the reaction of, I would call, indifference. The reaction of Jesus Christ being born is one of indifference. This is the reaction of the chief priests and teachers of the law. As we read here, they come, they, Herod calls them in when he finds out that another king has been born. If you look at verse 5, he asks them, where is this Christ to be born? And they reply by giving him Micah 5 to them. Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. The prophets say Bethlehem. And so they were, knew where the Messiah, their Savior, their king was to be born. And now there's a very real possibility that this prophecy has come true. And very interestingly, they just reply with knowledge. The text is silent. Here are the people that are supposed to be keeping watch. Here are the the people that, that know that the fulfiller of the law is coming. And there's a possibility that he has come and their their reaction is not excitement. They don't even question Herod here. How did you hear? Where did you hear? What indicators do you have? It's really of indifference. That's the feeling we get from the text. And from every indication we have in Scripture, they never went and sought this child out themselves. Think about it. That was their job. Their job was to be looking for the coming one. And they simply transferred knowledge. Bethlehem. Then they went back. And that was all. They simply didn't care. Blaise Pascal wrote, The sensitivity of men to small matters in their indifference to great matters indicates a strange inversion. That certainly describes these men's hearts, doesn't it? The chief priests and teachers had a strange heart inversion. If you take time, and I encourage you to do, to read the Gospels this week, you will see that the chief priests and teachers of the law were incredibly focused on the minors of the law, weren't they? Of fasting, what foods to eat, of cleanliness, of timing of ritual, of prayers, of sacrifices, but indifferent to who the law was pointing to, indifferent to why God gave the law. They were indifferent to the possibility of the long-awaited Savior being born. Perhaps it's hackneyed to say on this day, But it is certainly true to ask the challenging and application question, 
to our own lives on this day? Has indifference crept into our hearts in regard to Christ's birth? Perhaps there is a little strange heart inversion that has happened in our hearts and lives when in regards to Christmas. The greenery, the lights, the trees, the gifts that have taken place, they've taken the place of the true gift. We get overwhelmed by the celebration and forget the reason. I had a wonderful opportunity this week, actually not this week, this season, to watch with my kids. I love it when their heads come up when I say that. <laughs> to watch with my kids How the Grinch Stole Christmas. This is the, not the newer one, it's the older one that's read by Boris Karloff, the animated one. And Theodore Geisler, Dr. Seuss, was writing about exactly this thing, a strange heart inversion, wasn't he? The Grinch thought that Christmas was all about the packages, the greenery, the celebration, the lights. And he steals them, doesn't he? He says, I'll take Christmas away. I'll steal those things and Christmas won't come. Then if you remember, the Who's come out on Christmas Day, it's like the faithful few here, and they start singing, don't they? And the Grinch, it's at the top of the mountain with the, everything about to go off the edge, you remember that? He hears that singing and it impacts him. And as only Dr. Seuss can say, he writes, in the Grinch with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without boxes, packages, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. And the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. I don't know if you've opened your presents yet. Maybe you have. Maybe you're waiting till after the service. I don't know. But what if you went home and your gifts were gone? I don't know why. I don't know how. But what if they were gone? Nothing there. To the degree that it would ruin your Christmas is the degree to which you have a heart inversion. That you are sensitive to the small matters and tending towards indifference to the main matter at hand. That is, the gift of Jesus Christ. The second reaction to the birth of Christ we notice in our text is one of threatening, being threatened. Look with me at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, meaning that these men had come to worship the king of the Jews, when he heard this, he was disturbed. The NIV translates it disturbed. The ESV and NAS translates it troubled. Interestingly, the RSV translates it frightened. All those have the same meaning, come from the same meaning of the, of the Greek verb there. 
King Herod was clearly threatened by Jesus' birth, threatened by this birth of this king. Why? Why was he threatened? Why was he so threatened that if you keep reading on in the chapter, you find that in verse 13, he wants to find out where this child is so he can kill the child. And indeed, he goes on. He doesn't know where the child is, never finds out. But he, he has a mass baby genocide, we read a few verses later. He kills all the babies in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns under the age of two. He wants to wipe this child out. Why? Why, why is he so threatened by the birth of this child? For the same reason King Denethor was threatened when Aragorn was coming back. If you remember in Return of the King, Tolkien, Denethor is the steward of Gondor, of the kingdom of Gondor. He was sitting as a placeholder on the throne of Gondor. And when he hears that there's a possibility of the one true king coming back, Tolkien writes that character beautifully. He's threatened. He hates it. He hates that there's a possibility of the true king being alive. And Tolkien writes, after generations of rule by the stewards, they hardened their hearts against the return of the true heir. Denethor hated Aragorn because he knew that if it was true, and that if he arrived, he would lose his throne. He would lose his power. He would lose his prestige. He would lose his place. And that's exactly what Herod knew. He was king of the Jews, but Herod was just a placeholder. He was a steward of that throne. And he hardened his heart against the return of the true heir. He knew that if the true king of the Jews was really born, he would lose the prestige. He would lose the power. He would lose his influence. He would lose the throne. He knew that if the true king existed, he would be dethroned because he was actually the illegitimate king. And in a way, and perhaps on a subconscious level, in all of us and in the world, That's why we have a hard heart towards Jesus. That's why the world has a a virulent reaction to Jesus. If you've ever shared the gospel, if you've ever shared the gospel, you know what I mean. Here we are offering peace and hope and life and love and acceptance. And there is this strong arm against it, isn't there? Why is that? Why, why do, do people that don't know too much now about Jesus, why do they have that reaction? Instinctually, heart level. Because at a heart level, there's something spiritual going on there. And they know that if they accept this king, they're going to get out, have to get off the throne of their own life. And I see a lot of heads shaking here. And that applies to us too. We have to get off the throne of our own life if we truly believe that Jesus is the once and true and rightful heir of our heart. 
author and theologian A.W. Tozer wrote that the Bible, the people who true, are true believers in Christ have three distinct marks. They are facing only one direction. They never turn back. And they no longer have plans of their own. There's the throne. You don't have plans of your own. <laughs> Belief in Jesus dethrones you. He takes his rightful place on the throne of your life, just like a king. It's his will and not your will anymore. Application question, do you truly seek the Lord's will for your life? Or are you, are you deifying your own common sense and your own plans? His plans are now your plans. Your autonomy is subsumed, actually subsumed. Your life is now his. Scripture puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. Your life is not your own. You're bought with a price. You see, we should all live our life in such a way as to have on our tombstone what an old cavalier soldier who lost his life for the sake of King Charles has on his. His tombstone reads, he served King Charles with a constant, dangerous, and expensive loyalty. How beautiful is that? Wouldn't you want to have that on your tombstone? I think that's what was on the wise men's tombstones. We don't know where they are. But did you notice their reaction to baby Jesus? Very different. The $26 million reaction. Worship. Worship is the most expensive loyalty you can give. And that is what the Magi came to give him. From beginning to end, we see that's what their first question is, isn't it? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw the star in the east. We've come to worship him. Drop down to verse 11. And you see that there, on the coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. We don't know much about these three wise men. We really don't. Actually, all we know about these three wise men is in these 12 verses. That's it. There's been a lot of conjecture over the years. How many were there? What were their names? Were they royalty? Where were they from? How did they know about the star? But the only thing we can get from Scripture is what they knew. And what they knew was this baby was worth worshiping. They had traveled a long way. They had left their lives behind. They gave their treasures. They evacuated their throne of their own heart. And they bowed down and worshipped this baby. They bowed down and acknowledged that they were in the presence of someone greater. A baby in a manger in a stall. This person is greater than me. For many years, Sir Walter Scott was the leading literary figure in Britain. No one could write like Scott. Then the work of Lord Byron began to appear. And their greatness was immediately evident. Soon after, an anonymous critic praised his poems in a London paper. 
he declared that in the presence of Byron's brilliant works of poet and poetic genius, Scott is no longer considered England's greatest poet. Was later find out, found out that Sir Walter Scott wrote that. That's what we do in worship. We bow down and declare that we're in the presence of someone greater. The legitimate king of your life. That's what we're doing here today, isn't it? Bowing down and declaring, I need to get off the throne. And the, the real king needs to get on the throne of my life. I think that's one of the purposes that God designed in worship, by the way, guys. To remind us of this on an ongoing basis in our life. Because how easy is it, once we leave these doors, to place ourselves back on the throne? My way, my plans, my life. Getting off the throne of your heart and allowing Jesus to take his rightful place. We're like Sir Walter Scott every week, saying for all those to see, I'm no longer in charge, I'm no longer the greatest, I'm in the presence of someone greater. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and for your incarnation. And help us to treasure it and ponder it in our hearts like Mary. In Jesus' name, amen.